Let's open in Isaiah 9. Now, we're going to move into this section of the scripture, and it's going to feel a little bit like the Monday blues to you. Because last week, as we were looking at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, it was the weekend. It was glorious. We were talking about the coming of Jesus, and we thought about the eternal rule of Jesus and how there would be peace and prosperity. It's like a Sunday afternoon on Cape Cod with the sun shining, the perfect weather. You're out on the boat and on the water. And then that thought hits you. Ugh, I've got to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> I've got to go back to school Reality is starting to set in. You know, when you get into scripture, you have those weekend moments, but then sometimes you get back into reality. You settle back into the present state, into the human condition. It's important as the people of God to look in the mirror at the human condition because that's really how God transforms us as we become more aware of who we are and why we need God's renovating work in our lives. Now, interestingly enough, Isaiah is going to push the message forward by bringing us into an uncomfortable aspect of God's character. You'll see this in a refrain that's repeated multiple times in the, the message that Isaiah is giving, and that helps us to see the big idea of the text. In fact, you can break this section up into four stanzas, and it always ends with the same refrain. Let me, let me show you that. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. The text says, For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Then look at verse 17 of 9. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 21. For all of this his anger anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10, verse 4. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Hmm. I wonder how God really feels about this dynamic that Isaiah is about to tell us about. I mean, you'd kind of have to be dull to miss it. It's like the husband who's laying in bed next to his wife, and she's got her back turned to him, and her arms are folded, and then he asks the stupid question, is everything okay, honey? <laughs> and she fires back, well, you should know what's wrong with me right now. Unfortunately, well, I've never had that exchange before in my marriage. <laughs> I've just heard about it. The question before us, and it's an important question, but an uncomfortable question is, is it okay for God to get mad? Is it okay for God to get mad? Now, in one sense, it doesn't really matter what you think. God is God. God does what God wants to do. But we also know from the scriptures that God is approachable. He's rational. He opens himself up to our inquiry. And He's not like the gods of Greek mythology who were capricious or unpredictable. You didn't know what was going to set them off. They just kind of released the kraken, and you hope Perseus raises up and defeats the kraken. God's not like that. 
Really, God is predictable in the sense that he has explained himself in clear and concrete terms. When God tells us something about himself, his character, his promises, his purposes, his moral will, we're not left guessing. Now, I think that we ask this question of God, is it okay for God to get mad because we hold to two wrong views of anger? The first wrong view is that we generalize anger. We say something like, anger in any form for any reason is wrong. Now that's false. If someone intentionally hurts my kids, it's okay for me to get angry. If I find out that something reprehensible like human trafficking is taking place in my own backyard, of course that should set my anger into motion to hopefully do something about it. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are, of course, forms of anger that are not good, irrational, misguided, misdirected. But anger has its place because God created it for a reason. Secondly, we create this false dichotomy with anger. Between love and anger, we say something like this, well, if God is love, then he can't get angry. Because when you love someone, you shouldn't get angry with them, which I would say, again, false. False. If I love someone, I care enough to get angry sometimes. You know, the number one emotion that lends itself towards people getting a divorce is not anger, it is contempt. Contempt means, I don't care anymore. Go do whatever it is you want to do. If I can get angry in the relationship, it means I still care enough about this relationship to fight for it. So, here's the truth. God genuinely cares about you, which means then that you can make God angry. So, we look at Isaiah 9, 8 through 10, 4, we're going to see that God is referencing certain things that northern Israel is doing. Remember, we've been looking at southern Israel, Judah, but now we look up north. He has strong words. He's expressing himself clearly. He's telling them that there's four things they're doing that he just can't stand for. You think about this with God's renovating work. We tend to think, oh, God needs to work on me, but it's just like, you know, a paint touch-up job. He's going to replace a few fixtures. It'll be all good from there. No, 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 no. It's a complete gut and replace kind of job. So as we look at the human condition this morning, we're going to see four things that make God angry. First, we're going to see that arrogance makes God angry. We pick up at verse 8 of chapter 9. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin. Now that is a reference to Assyria against him. 
and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, that's Israel's ancient enemies, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, here's the refrain, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now we know that God is referencing northern Israel here because of the terms that are used. Jacob, Ephraim, that's the clan name of northern Israel. Samaria is the capital city. But when you think about a prophet delivering a message, you have to ask yourself the question, well, who's his audience? Like, who's he talking to? Who's he targeting with this message? As you read this, the text of Isaiah, he's a southern prophet. And I don't imagine that Isaiah jumped on a donkey one day and rode up to the north and he was going to preach to the northern Israel kingdom about all the things that they needed to repent from. No, I actually think that the target audience of this text is the south, it's Judah, because they had this tendency of keeping up with the north. Whatever they were doing, we we're going to do too eventually. So Isaiah is using the north as a negative example to say, don't do this. These are things that can get God mad. Now, Judah hears this message from Isaiah, and they could go off thinking, always knew that about those Yankees up north. They're a pretty bad lot. Of course they're doing these kind of things. Of course God needs to deal with them. It turns out that we all have this ability to disassociate ourselves from the word of God. It's like the person sitting on a Sunday morning, hearing a preacher preach a sermon, and they're thinking the whole time as the sermon is being preached that this really applies to the person three chairs over from me. Here's the truth about God's word. Every message, every quiet time, every word of the Lord is for you, not for your neighbor. God doesn't need you to discern what your neighbor needs to hear. He's pretty good at that himself. In fact, it makes me think of what Jesus said to the people listening to his message. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So guess what? Listen up, Judah. God has a message for you this morning. Don't be like Israel, don't let your head get inflated with pride that it becomes like this massive inflated balloon. Don't be like that handkerchief that's an accessory on a suit coat that's all show and no blow. I like what, how Peterson paraphrases verse 10. Israel says, things aren't that bad. We can handle anything that comes. If our buildings are knocked down, well, we'll rebuild them bigger and finer. If our forests are cut down, we'll replant them with finer trees. In other words, if our fords are impounded, well, then we'll steal BMWs. They have this delusion of grandeur that the future is going to be better, even though they know that the present is not working out well for them. And it's not. In a 20-year period, they have had six kings on the throne. Four of those rules end in assassination. One king only transfers the throne to his son. 
Now, you would think that as all of that is going on, that people would kind of take a moment to pause and reflect and ask, why is all of this happening? But instead, they think, oh, we'll do better. The future, we know that we're going to progress beyond this. So there's something about the human condition where arrogance blinds you. In God, the way that he addresses arrogance is very natural in nature. Think of a person speeding down the highway at 100 miles per hour. They think they're getting to the destination where they're wanting to go. And God throws this big brick wall down. It's called reality. And they can either choose to pump the brakes or try to hit the wall. Israel is going to hit the wall. The adversaries of resin, Assyria, is going to come, and, and God's going to prove to them through reality that your arrogance, your delusions of grandeur, isn't real. It's axiomatic in the scriptures. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So arrogance is something that makes him mad, but we're also going to see something else. Perverse leadership can make God mad. Look at verse 13. We pick up there. The text says, The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Here's the refrain again. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The problem, I believe, can be captured in verse 16 of the text. And if I was to paraphrase it, bad leaders are leading and bad followers are more than happy to follow their bad leadership. Bad leaders are leading and bad followers are more than happy to follow their leadership. There is this unhealthy codependency that can happen in church, culture, home, work, wherever it is, where there is a culpability where both parties are responsible when it comes to perverse leadership. The leaders are supposed to be directing the people towards the things of the Lord. The people are supposed to be expecting the leaders to direct them towards the things of the Lord. There's this quiet compromise. We won't say anything if you don't say anything. Now, I want you to think for a minute about society. They have this expression. They say that culture is upstream of politics. So if you're thinking about how a stream flows, the headwaters is culture, and then way down the river is politics. Now, Oftentimes, when we look at the political arena, we get really frustrated. Ah, oh, I don't like who's in office. I don't like the House. I don't like the Senate. I don't like my local politics. I don't like any of it. And if you're feeling that way, 
due to that expression and what we're seeing here in the scriptures, you actually need to look in the mirror first. Something's really wrong with culture. I was thinking about this deeply because we've been going through this song and dance in the Christian world where there are these leadership failures, there's these moral failings, there are these surprises where there was a public figure that we looked to and we thought, oh, you know, this person is representative of our values and then they let us down. And what ends up happening is it's the same song and dance. They let us down and then we go on for weeks and we, we wax eloquent about how could this have happened? How could it have happened? But no one's asking the question, why is it that leaders with really bad character keep having so many followers? Isn't there like blame to share, blame to go around in this dynamic? Now here's what I think it is. I think we elevate leaders for the wrong reasons. We're looking for charisma and not character. We're looking for spiritual results and not spiritual reliance. It's actually the complete inverse of everything Jesus said you're supposed to look for when you look for a leader. And I also believe that scripture says that I'm responsible for the choice I make and who I choose to follow. Now, how can I make a well-informed, good, reasonable decision in who I follow? Well, the Bible says that you actually have to be near enough to see the pattern of their life. Can you vouch for a leader on a big platform that you really know nothing about? Could you have really vouched for Ravi Zacharias's character? A couple of years ago, I would have said, oh, he's, he's impenetrable. He has great character. And I was wrong. Why? I didn't know anything about him. I never rubbed shoulders with him. Think about how God has organized leadership. It's in local churches, local assemblies. It's a place near enough where I can actually rub shoulders with a leader and with leaders, and I can observe the pattern of their lives. Why does that matter? Because leadership is more about example than it is about skills. And as we learn that as Christians, we're going to find ourselves having leadership failures less and less and less. You can get on YouTube and say anything. You can say it persuasively. But you really have to prove leadership out in the trenches, right? When people are watching you and they saw how you reacted to your kids and they saw what you're doing. Let's move on. I know this one's meddling a little bit. We're going to look at another thing that makes God angry. Unchecked selfishness. Verse 18 and onward. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. Why is God so angry? Look at verse 19. No one spares another. Or you could translate that. They don't have pity on anyone else. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the 
flesh of his own arm. That's an idiomatic expression to say they even devour their own children. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, here's the refrain, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Peterson paraphrases verse 20, appetites insatiable, stuffing and gorging themselves left and right with people and things, but they starve. Not even their children were safe from their rapacious hunger. Now, of course, this is, this is a metaphor. They're not actually eating people here, but their society is a self-cannibalizing society. They're eating one another up because they don't take pity on one another. No one thinks about the other person. It's all about what am I getting for myself? They think within a three-foot circle, not about a society as a whole. This is unchecked, self-seeking behavior. Now, this is what happens anytime a society, a people, a nation choose themselves over the common good. I, I like to think of it as a mutually assured destruction. You don't have to go back to ancient Israel to see this. You can see this in a home. You can see it in a work environment. You can even, can you believe, see it in churches. That doesn't happen in churches. Well, Paul seemed to think it did. In Galatians 5.15, he's talking to this church, and he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So here's the imagery there. Imagine yourself going up to a buffet, and there's a selection of options, but the options are your own body parts. It's your arm and your foot and your eyeballs. And you're like, hmm, which am I going to have today? It's kind of gross. But that's what you're doing when you tear one of your own spiritual family apart, Paul says, because the church is a body. Why do we do this? We like to win. Our ego drives us to win. Uh, it's a staff team, we've been reading a book on leadership, and we read a chapter, and they were telling the story about the king, King Pyrrhus, and he was re leading 40,000 Greek soldiers against 40,000 Roman soldiers, and it was a bloody, gruesome conflict. He finally overcomes the Romans as he deploys elephants, and they tear down the walls that the Romans are hiding themselves behind, and then they storm into that city, and they take it, and they win the victory. One of his captains comes up to him and he congratulates the king. Congratulations on your victory, King Pyrrhus. The king looks out and he surveys the losses and the resources that they've spent. And he looks over at his captain and he says, if I win one more victory like this, we will all be lost. They call it a Pyrrhic victory. Sometimes our wins come at too great of a cost. We win a debate. I told that customer 
that it wasn't our fault, that the shipment was late. They should have known better. And you end up losing a customer for life. Or you argue and win the day with your teenager or with your spouse and you hurt the relationship. Or think about what we're about to go through as a church together, God willing. If we go through a building renovation process, and I get so kind of positional around this thing, and this is the way to do it, and this is the only way to do it, and I'm going to argue vehemently to get my way, we could destroy a piece that God's been building within this church for decades. You know, godly believers refuse to win Pyrrhic victories. You really have to start asking yourself big questions when you get into debate mode. Uh, Number one, is this even worth debating? Or what do I actually hope to accomplish here? Or why do I feel like I need to remain in a position of opposition? Why can't I find my way into a position of support? What am I hoping to win? What do I want to win? Is it about me? Is it about the mission? Is it about the relationships? One final thing that makes God angry, injustice. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. Here's the refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The final straw in Isaiah's message is injustice. You have to understand this about God. The poor, the widow, the fatherless, they're all objects of God's special concern. If you look through the scriptures, one way that God has defined himself or explained himself to us is in Psalm 68, verse 5. He calls himself father of the fatherless. Protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He's the God who sees those that no one else sees. He sees those who hurt most. Even at the beginning of scriptures, as the story is unfolding, we have the story of Hagar. And in that story, God is presented as El Roy, the God who sees. If you go back to verse 14 of chapter 9, we read about this concept, the wrath of the Lord. And wrath is not one of those terms that we kind of think of as nice and rosy and good, right? It, It seems to us like it's an overreaction. It's like hitting something with 10 pounds that needed one pound of treatment. But biblically, wrath is God's active, resolute opposition to evil. He sees 
any act of injustice that's been perpetrated, and God is a just judge. He will dispense justice. I've been meeting with a group of guys, and we're making our way through a book called Spiritual Leadership, and as we've been talking about leadership, we got into a conversation about fatherhood naturally, and we were talking about that dynamic as a father when you're like, I don't know when to dispense discipline or grace. I don't know when sometimes force is needed in this situation where I come down a little harder in the dynamic. And Jared Weeks made a great statement. He said, sometimes there needs to be shock and awe. There needs to be shock and awe. And I thought, you know, that's kind of right. Sometimes a child's behavior gets so far outside of the boundaries of what's acceptable where you just got to be like, nope, that's not happening again. We don't play that way around here. That's not our family's values. Now, of course, you have to be wise and judicious, right? Uh, if you're in a home where there's just constant yelling, yelling about everything, pick this up, put that down, do this, do that, you end up tuning out the noise as a child, right? Because when everything is intense, nothing's intense. But when you're a judicious, and sometimes it's just like, the only time I hear daddy raise his voice is when it's like we went way off reservation. You know, God hates injustice so much that he will always go into a shock and awe campaign against it. He hates it. We ask the question, well, where was God? Where was God in this situation? And the biblical answer to that question is he was present. He saw it. He took note of it. He intends to do something about it. He's not a neglectful God. He's not a forgetful God. He's not a complacent God. He is a God who sees, takes note, and will respond. Now, we might get a little uncomfortable with this fact. He's also a patient God, meaning he even gives evil people time to repent. And we think to ourselves, well, I don't really like that. Well, the prophet Jonah didn't like it. You know, when we hear that Jonah story in that Sunday school message, it's kind of like, oh, you know, Jonah was really scared to go up to Nineveh to preach the message to them. So he ran the other direction and he got swallowed by a fish. That's not what happened. He hated their guts. He ran away from God because he thought, if I preach this message, they might repent. He hated them because of what they had done. They were merciless. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. That's the people we're talking about here. This is the people that have been so oppressive and hostile to everyone in the region. And Jonah's like, I don't want God to forgive them. He's the unmerciful servant that Jesus described in Matthew 18. The problem with us is we are so arbitrary when it comes to this concept of evil. The Bible says I'm evil too. So I don't want God to be patient with me. Of course I want God to be patient with me. Of course I need his grace and mercy. And scripture says, so does everyone. 
And that's why he's patient. But listen, there will be a day of shock and awe. And that's why as a human being, you don't want to exclude God from your life. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to be in right relationship with him. Isaiah is saying in this message that we're looking at that God can either be a sanctuary to you or a rock of stumbling. And the only way to meet him as sanctuary is by the way of faith. What is it that makes God angry? What we're seeing in this text, that it's arrogance, that it's that unhealthy codependency, bad leadership, culpable followers, it's unchecked selfishness, it's injustice, and I don't need to transport myself back to Isaiah's day to see that in the human condition. It's here today. Now, in our Thrive groups, we've been studying Jesus' great manifesto together, the Sermon on the Mount. And in that study, you notice that Jesus says to his followers that God wants you to be different. He's doing this renovating work in your life so that, that doesn't, uh, that's not your condition, that's not your nature, but the nature that God's producing in you is being pure in spirit, pure in heart, merciful hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being a peacemaker. Why does God want to do that in you? Well, it's because he wants you to be salt and light. He doesn't want you to be a destroyer of society. He wants you to be a preserver and influencer of society so that you can help people find their way back to God. And he says the way that you do that is you have to have this interior change in your heart you have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Well, how am I going to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. You're genuine and authentic in your inner person in the way that you live for God. They weren't. They were box checkers. They just did things because that's what you're supposed to do. God wants a people who love him from the heart and love his purposes. You know, as you look at God's heart in Scripture, His will, He doesn't want to be angry with anyone. He's not like this hyper-reactionary God. He's a loving God, but He loves us enough to get angry. Now, my response to that could be one of two things. I could either run from Him when I realize I've done something to make him angry, or, and I want to suggest that's the wrong response, I could run to him. I think about my interactions with my kids. I don't want them to run from me. I want them to come to me. Guess what? God loves you infinitely more than I will ever love one of my children. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we look at the text this morning, we acknowledge that you are a loving God, that you're so invested in this relationship with us, Lord, that, that it could even produce anger in your heart because you're fighting for the relationship. You care enough about the relationship to get mad. You're not uh, a God that's clinical and detached and removed 
You're present, you're near. Help us to be the people that Jesus said are blessed in his Sermon on the Mount. We need that interior change. We don't want to be self-driven, self-focused. We want to be about your purposes and your priorities. Do the work that only you can do in us. And let us be your faithful people. Let us look more like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.